Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Episode 273, Part 2, we've been talking about Schelling's system of transcendental idealism. So we're at the preliminary division of the transcendental philosophy. The way he starts off the section, he tells us that now that we've made the subject primary, how do we say how knowledge is possible? He's going to say, we're going to find ourselves a first principle of philosophy, which will turn out to be self-consciousness. And we're going to do that by tracing some of our fundamental convictions, convictions that are deeply rooted in the human understanding back to this fundamental conviction will show that they all originate in this first principle. It begins from naive realism, the idea that there are things outside of us and presentations coincide with them and we're acquainted with them as they are in themselves and their determinacy affects our sensibility and gives us representations, all that stuff. And the second intuition that we have is that we're free and A and B conflict. So, you know, it's the classic conflict between freedom and determinism. And then in the third division of transcendental philosophy, where resolving that contradiction, we need this predetermined harmony where the same activity that produces the objective world will expresses itself in volition. Surprise, surprise again, the self. And we get the idea here that willing is kind of a conscious version of a non-conscious productive activity that produces what we think of as things, as objects. There are sort of two versions of that, of the identity of will and nature in there. One is focusing on the subject, which is that when I will to move my hand and whoop, my hand moves, that is actually the same thing as what I unconsciously will, which is the generation of the entire experience world. (laughs) (laughs) Those seem to be very different things, but they're both actually end up being will. On the other hand, looking at the nature pole, he says nature both as a whole and its individual products will have to appear as a work both consciously engendered and yet simultaneously a product of the blindest mechanism. Nature is purposive without being purposively explicable. The philosophy of natural purposes or teleology is thus our point of union between theoretical and practical philosophy. So this is straight out of Kant's third critique, right? What does he call it? Purposive purposelessness or something like that? It's purposiveness without a purpose. There you go. That's describing aesthetic experience. We had been recommended and long had our list reading more from later in the third critique where he specifically has a whole part on teleology. And we were wondering, what the hell does teleology in describing nature have to do with artistic experience? Well, we're getting a hint of that here because Schelling says the thing that you need to do transcendental philosophy is an aesthetic sense. That that is the thing when you're unraveling the secrets of nature and, in fact, creating the self. Those are both like artistic acts. It's pretty crazy. I don't think it's crazy at all. It blows my mind. Let me say that. (laughs) I'm not saying it's wrong. That's I'm just saying it's crazy. I guess I was also reading it not just in the Kantian way, but in the more whitehead way of, yes, you can give a mechanistic explanation of nature. You can also give nature as like it's trying to do stuff. It's a teleological explanation as if it were a conscious entity. Those two kinds of explanations are actually not incompatible. Those can both be equally true of something. I guess I'm finding myself wanting to quibble on the idea of of teleology being 
nature wanting to do something versus it's like a conscious activity versus the activity having a kind of directedness, like being a vector. I guess I thought he was being more literal about it, like Schopenhauer, where, yes, you can describe the world as appearance, because Schopenhauer is more straight up Kantian in this sense, that the world as appearance has these natural laws, but the world as will, which is the same kind of will that we have. It's just more blind. (laughs) I don't know. But you could actually literally attribute, I don't want to say wants and desires and things, because those all assume a sort of human psychological framework, but volition to nature itself. Do you think that reading that into Schelling is just too much? One of the things that the absolute idealists are going to suggest is that the organic is on the way to consciousness, so that in a way, teleology is closely associated with that. When we seem to detect design and function in nature, what we are detecting is, in a sense, we are detecting design in some very broad sense, if nature is a kind of super intelligence. And our consciousness in particular is just a perfected version of that. There's a lot to say, though, by what you mean by intelligence or super intelligence in this case. It's going to be tied up with the notion that there is a history that affects what that volition is directed towards later on, that there's a kind of aiming that is dynamic, that is cultivated and refined over time. I wanted to draw on our Indian philosophy episode in defense of a Schopenhauerian kind of the world is intelligence. Because if you want to say just the fact that you can describe the world with natural laws makes it proto-intelligent, like that seems to be what Schelling has said. Like it's not just our attempts to wrestle nature into science, but nature itself tends toward its own spiritualization, tends toward its mindedness. That makes me feel like, well, yes, for a human intelligence, this is like something from our Indian philosophy episode, for a human intelligence, it has a picture of its goal in mind, but maybe because the soul of nature doesn't have those particular accoutrements that go with human intelligence and the fact that we have senses and we have limits in a way that nature doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not intelligent and wanting to defend the intelligence of nature in a broad sense. You can treat DNA, right, as kind of a proto-brain, if we want to associate this with modern science. There's a plan in DNA, and then there's an unfolding according to DNA. And in fact, there are some interesting commonalities in the way the brain works and the way DNA functions. You could see the brain as an elaboration of what is already going on in nature with DNA and this whole idea that you can have a information, right, and that leads to, there's almost like a plan for activity. Ultimately, the line between intention, what we would call subjective intention and consciousness, and something that is non-conscious might be blurrier than we think, even when we're talking about our own experience. When we do things that seem picking up our keys without thinking about it, and ask someone, if, did you do that intentionally or not? Well, it's completely unconscious, but of course I picked them up so I could go out and drive my car. Something behaving law-like doesn't make it teleological i don't know i drop something and it goes to the ground it's obeying the law of gravity i know normally when we say teleological it's like an acorn has the blueprint of a tree in it more like that but isn't the fundamentals this is the way aristotle at least thought of these things is that the thing that you drop wants to go down that's its teleology well it seems to me that if you say that laws 
and predictiveness of those laws is what is teleological, then that makes the argument of determinism just one that's summarizing the teleological tendency. Yeah, that would be a weird result. But isn't that what Schelling is saying, is that you can at once give an explanation of intelligence and in terms of determinism, those actually aren't in conflict. But it sounds like the way I was just putting it, that I'm cheating, I'm just defining the two as being the same. That determinism is intelligence, therefore we're free because we're part of an intelligence. Like, uh, I don't know, that's pretty lame. The thing that you're missing, and I think it's in Aristotle and certainly in Schelling, is the notion of intrinsic activity, that there's a source of some sort, which a law might describe the result of it, but it doesn't describe the sourceness of it. For teleology, there's a cause that lies in the future in a way, where it lies in a whole rather than just being purely mechanistic. Although what I was doing with the DNA, right, I was doing what we all are inclined to do these days, which is to reduce teleology to a mechanism and say, well, DNA does have the plan in the sense it's informational and it does have a vector, right? As you said, Dylan, things have these tendencies so that teleology is reducible. Right. It's the only reason teleology is respectable is because you could do that because that would seem to be like the big conflict of why Aristotelian science was bullshit because it had these like mysterious final causes in it. And all the sensible mechanists of of the scientific revolution said, hell with that. We need to actually come up with something, not knowing that some of the things they would come up with would be complex enough that it would be way shorter to give a teleological explanation of the growth of a plant still. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening.